snippets of timeless classics with ramblings on everything bookish, Ink and Quill connects you with literature, culture and writers in China and around the globe. Discovering literature and following the stories behind your favorite authors, this is Ink and Quill. I'm your host, Yang Yong. In 1981, in order to transport coal from the city of Tangshan in the province of Hebei to the nearest harbor, the then Qing government decided to build a railroad, namely the Tangshu Railway. Though the track was only six miles long at that time, it is considered China's first self-produced rail line. But the Tangshu Railway is neither the first nor the most famous rail line built by Chinese people. Many in China are still unaware that almost 20 years before the construction of Tangshu Railway, there was another track laid down with the help of Chinese blood, toil, tears, and sweat. This track was not in China, but rather in the United States. This is Christopher Liu, the former American Deputy Secretary of Labor. On May the 9th, 2014, he gave a keynote speech at the induction ceremony of Chinese railroad workers into the U.S. Department of Labor Hall of Fame. We gather today to honor a group of workers who helped build our nation. Workers who are in no small measure responsible for one of the largest economic expansions in our country, and really one of the most significant historic accomplishments. Now, growing up, this is not a history I learned in school, and that's a shame. So my hope is that by sharing the history of these 12,000 workers, we can help to repay. Some of the debt we owe to generations of immigrants who helped build this country. But who are those people? Why were they willing to sail across the Pacific to the United States? And what sort of contribution did Chinese workers give in helping to establish a modern USA? In today's Inconquil, we tap into some of those long-forgotten memories and push aside a cobweb of history to find out the truth. In the bright living room in the Chinese capital Beijing, Rong Jing, a local finance director as well as an amateur photographer, flipped through a thick book of photos. One of the images she points to is a slightly faded portrait of a Chinese man, solemn-looking with crew-cut hair. He wears a brownish tie and a dark suit, looking like any other average Joe you may encounter on the street. The man in the photo is Ron's great grandfather. When I was six, my father took me back to our hometown in Guangdong. We went to Humen, where my mother came from. Around that time, Humen was merely a shabby fishing village. I remember that there were no roads, only small beaten paths. Wherever you go, you'd be stepping into mud. But despite this, a Western-style house stood out. If my memory serves me correctly, back then the house was the only three-story building in Humen, and it belonged to my family. I was so curious about how my family became rich, so I started to ask around. 
Then my grandmother told me that it was my great grandfather, her father-in-law, who went to America, amassed the family fortune, and built that house. It was 1968 when Rong first learned about the patriarch of her family and saw his portrait in the old family house. The old house was dimly lit, so the portraits were the first things that caught your attention when you step into the inner hall. I was just a child back then, so my only impression about my great grandfather was of him wearing a suit. When my grandmother was still alive, she talked about him off and on. She told me he was the Gold Mountain Man. Gold Mountain Man, or Gan Sam Ha in Cantonese, is a term referring to those who traveled from China to California during the Gold Rush in the mid 19th century. Many were young men inspired by tales of gold mountains on the other side of the Pacific Ocean. But when the gold, the prime reason for these young men to leave their homes, gradually disappeared, young Chinese miners started taking on other jobs. They took on many roles, transforming themselves into laundry men, wool spinners, domestic servants, and cigar makers, among other jobs. Then came 1862, when the U.S. federal government passed the Pacific Railroad Act. This created a new set of employment opportunities for Chinese settlers. Huang Anyan is a historian from Beijing Normal University and also the author of several books on the Chinese railroad builders in America. One of the most important sections in the Pacific Railroad Act is that it granted railway companies public lands on either side of the track. The amount of land granted along the sides of the tracks actually took up an area equivalent of several U.S. states. So you can imagine the huge profits the bill created. So with lots of money in hand, railway companies started to recruit labor. According to Huang, when the U.S. Congress passed the act in haste, the country was already in a state of civil war, with the southern U.S. states seceding the year before. So the establishment of a transcontinental railroad was not only a response to meet transportation needs, but also a strategic military maneuver. Two companies were contracted by the U.S. government: Union Pacific. And Central Pacific, the two raced against one another, since the company that built the most line would get the most cash and land. One headed to west, while another built towards the east. The region that the Central Pacific Railroad Company had to go through was mountainous and hilly. Many peaks around that area are made of granite, so they made slow progress. Whereas the areas that Union Pacific was in charge of were mostly plains, so their work went smoothly. Faced with this dilemma, Central Pacific had to pull out all the stops. They tried to hire different sets of workers, including African Americans, Civil War prisoners, Ukrainian miners, and Irish workers who were adept at building railroads. Yet, compared with Union Pacific, they were still far behind. Therefore. A taskmaster named Charles Crocker suggested hiring Chinese laborers. The owner of the company was Leland Stanford, who was also the governor of California at the time, as well as the founder of Stanford University. 
He was a little bit hesitant about the idea, but eventually they decided to hire 50 Chinese workers on a trial basis. The plan worked out pretty well, so the company started to hire more. Today, it's difficult to tell how many Chinese laborers worked on the first transcontinental railroad, as many of the historical records have been lost to time. But one thing Professor Huang is sure of is that most of the workers originated from southern China. This place has a long history of foreign trade, and it has a far history. There is a tradition for people living in Guangdong to set forth on voyages and operate overseas. The development of navigational technology and the domestic turbulence, such as the Taiping Rebellion, also prompted people to move away. Around that time, the conflict between Hakka people and Tuja ethnic group in Guangdong was also raging, so many fled that as well. A number of defeated Taiping rebels also ended up moving to America to elude capture. So those people became indentured laborers, but there was also a portion of Chinese railroad workers who came from well-to-do families. They were freemen who bought passage to the United States themselves and went to America to strike a fortune. Professor Huang Anyan notes that in 1868, China and the U.S. concluded Burlingame Treaty, which granted certain privileges to citizens of either country residing in the other. This prompted a new generation of gold mountain men to make their way overseas to try to realize the American dream, but unfortunately for many, they didn't realize the level of hardship they were entering in the post-Civil War United States. This is Li Ju, a Beijing-based freelance photographer, with a strong interest in history and vintage photographs. This curiosity-driven shutterbug has traveled along the transcontinental rail lines in the United States five times since 2012. In tracing the routes Chinese railroad workers once followed, he eventually came to understand the dire working conditions they must have endured in the 19th century. From 1865 till 1869, these workers spent nearly three and a half years laying tracks over the Sierra Nevada mountains. Though the distance from the coast to the Donner Pass in the northern Sierra Nevada is relatively short, the grade is not gentle at all. Steep gradients were concentrated in short sections of lines, where it would allow the train to descend or ascend along the winding mountain passes. Around that time, there were no roads, so all the construction equipment and building materials had to be carried by manpower, livestock, or carriage. Due to the primitive technology at the time, it was extremely difficult to cut tunnels through the hills and build bridges. The harsh, severe weather was another obstacle that Chinese workers had to face. Those rugged mountains are covered by ice and snow for most of the year. Since many laborers came from Guangdong, which is subtropical, it was rather challenging for them to adapt to the local climate. I remember that every time we went through there in late September, there was always snow. I encountered heavy snow twice, with at least a dozen inches falling both times. Even driving uphill and downhill was quite dangerous. Bundled in down jackets, we were still struggling to hold our camera and take pictures. Just having your hands exposed for a short time. Would leave them frozen, so you can imagine the hardship those workers endured. But 
What exactly were the roles of the Chinese workers at that time? Professor Huang Anyan, a researcher who has studied the history of Chinese migrants to the United States, says the work was often grim. Basically, the Chinese workers were assigned the most rudimentary tasks. That's the reason they were nicknamed spikes. The spike is the foundation of the railroad, so all the basic work was finished by the Chinese workers. The tools they employed were very simple. Most only used shovels, ropes, pickaxes, a carrying pole, and a wheelbarrow. But despite being given menial jobs, the Chinese railway workers still earned respect. Samuel Montague, the chief engineer of the Central Pacific Railroad, noted in his annual report in 1865, "Chinese are faithful and industrious, and under proper supervision, some become skillful in the performance of their duty. Many of them are becoming very expert in drilling, blasting, and other departments of rock work." According to photographer Li Ju, who has conducted extensive field research along the first transcontinental railroad, Chinese workers also proved themselves to be reliable and highly efficient. The winter of 1865 to 1866 was said to be extremely harsh, as blizzards pummeled the area over 40 times. Each time, dozens of inches of snow would fall, but the construction couldn't stop. So all the workers were assigned into three shifts and began to tunnel. In the beginning, they cut the tunnel from both ends through the mountain. The company hired both Chinese and Irish miners, who were good at tunneling, and then compared their progress. They realized that though the Chinese workers were slighter in build compared to their Irish counterparts, the Chinese worked much faster. So they fired the Irish and employed an all-Chinese team. In order to speed up the work, the company decided to dig a shaft from the top of the mountain so workers could use baskets to transfer out rocks. Working from four different angles, the Chinese workers cut the tunnel twice as fast as first expected. Around that time, Swedish chemist Alfred Nobel invented the blasting oil nitroglycerin, the main ingredient in what we know today as dynamite. The Central Pacific Railroad adopted nitroglycerin as an industrial explosive. The task of blasting away the rocks and mountainsides still rested on the shoulders of the Chinese workers. But unlike today, with timed fuses, nitroglycerin needed to be set off by hand, meaning someone had to plant the highly combustible explosive, then, after lighting the fuse, run as quickly as possible to escape the explosion. At Cape Horn, a rocky outcropping sitting high above the American River, Chinese laborers were suspended over steep vertical cliffs in wicker baskets to drill holes along the hillside. They were then required to ram black powder inside the holes and light the fuse. They were forced to rely on the people pulling up the baskets to keep them alive. Today, it's difficult to know the exact number of Chinese workers killed in the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad, as historical records remain vague and unclear. But both Professor Huang Annian and Li Ju agree that no matter whether it was an industrial accident or smallpox or an avalanche, the death toll among Chinese workers 
was very high. Speaking in all probability, there were thousands who died during that time. Shouldering much more arduous tasks and constantly facing the threat of death and the harsh natural environment, Chinese laborers were also paid less than their Caucasian counterparts, and were also forced to provide their own room and board. Eventually, the workers took a stand to secure their own rights. Thomas Perez, the former U.S. Secretary of Labor, speaks of the Chinese workers' courageous endeavor. And as you know, it was backbreaking, dangerous work. Many died. They were subjected to brutal working and living conditions, and paid less than other laborers for their work. That was wrong then. That's wrong now. And they laid railroad tracks in the sweltering desert and in the snow-covered Sierra Nevada mountains. Several thousand of the Chinese workers found the courage to strike for better conditions. That is remarkable. The courage of these leaders is something that the nation needs to know more about. They fought for an increase in pay from thirty-five to forty dollars per month, and they fought for an eight-hour workday. Management responded by cutting off food、uh, trains to starve them out. The strike lasted about a week before a majority of the workers resumed working, and although their demands were not met. Their willingness to organize and stand up for their rights, in and of itself, was a victory, and in and of itself was a profile in courage. And yet, their commitment to the work and the sacrifices they made just have not been fully recognized. On May the tenth, eighteen sixty-nine, a ceremonial golden spike was hammered down in Promontory, Utah. Marking the ceremonial completion of the first transcontinental railroad, which came in both ahead of schedule and under budget, with the rail lines built by both Union Pacific and Central Pacific connecting together, for the first time in U.S. history, train travel across the continental United States became reality. But its significance goes much deeper. Hailed by some as the most significant American technological achievement of the 19th century, the first transcontinental railroad also helped create the post-Civil War expansion of the United States. As a New York Times article remarked, it psychologically brought the country together. However, even though at least 12,000 Chinese workers were hired to help build the lines, their contribution have been largely overlooked. On the day when the rail lines were officially connected, only several Chinese representatives were invited to a private celebration. Chinese laborers were not seen at the public event. In Andrew Russell's iconic photo capturing the ceremony to join the two lines, owning white faces appear, with no Chinese faces among the crowd. A great-granddaughter of a Chinese railroad worker, Chinese American Courtney Yongyu, says the contributions made by the Chinese laborers to U.S. history have been largely overlooked. There are many, many descendants who do not know their ancestors. Were part of this great American enterprise. It was buried in U.S. history, hidden by Chinese communities themselves, because there was a time 
when a Chinese laborer was of the lowest class of human being in America. After the railroad's completion, there was no longer demand for Chinese workers, only that the Chinese must go. There were labor riots, the burnings of Chinatowns, and most devastating of all, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. The Chinese Exclusion Act blocked Chinese immigration for some 60 years until the United States government decided that it needed Chinese help during World War II. Historian Huang Anyan says this discriminatory move by U.S. lawmakers is a scar that still hasn't fully healed. The act ran from 1882 until 1943, when the then-American President Franklin Roosevelt repealed it in order to ally with China during the war against the Japanese. It was enforced for 61 years. It forbid the entry of Chinese citizens, especially women, into the United States. During that time, many of the railway workers chose to leave. Among those who stayed, a few got married to locals, but most of them died alone and without their families. As a scholar specializing in studying the history of Chinese railway workers in America, Huang refers to them as the silent spikes. Why do I call them silent spikes? Because in the past, no one talked about their stories. Maybe there would be the odd mention of them, but there was no systematic, integrated picture of what happened to the Chinese workers. The voices of those Chinese laborers has long been muted. They don't have any representation in U.S. history books. If you study history, you soon realize that history often only records the actions of kings and emperors, bigwigs, elites, and celebrities. No one really wants to tell the stories of the underdogs and the lower class. To give back the voices to those who have been long forgotten, Huang Annie and the photographer Li Ju have started working together. In 2015, the two published a book of photos, Trace the Silent Spike, commemorate the Chinese workers who built the American Railroad, or in Chinese, 沉默到定的足迹,纪念华工建设美国铁路. By delving deep into archives, old photos and historical documents from both China and the United States, the authors have tried to piece together the fragments of the past and debunk the myths surrounding the often nameless and faceless Chinese laborers. Made up of detailed transcripts and nearly 600 photos, the book is almost like a time machine that takes us back to the hardships and triumphs the Chinese workers faced in the 19th century America. Li Zhu, who has traveled along the transcontinental railroad several times, has also revisited the places where the official Central Pacific Railroad photographer Alfred Hart captured in his famous steel view photos. Li Zhu has taken new photos at the same spot and paired them with old ones in hopes of helping readers learn more about the difficult working conditions and racial tensions that Chinese workers faced a century and a half ago. I produced more than one-third of the photos in this book. As for the rest of the pictures, 
Half of them are historical photos, while the rest of the pictures have been taken by Professor Huang in the hometowns of the workers here in China. Li admits that his field trips have been memorable. I will always remember in the city of Lovelock, where we met an old man named Larry DeLeo. In the town where he lives, there is a Chinese cemetery. No Chinese person has lived there for years, so the cemetery is basically in shambles. But DeLeo, who has a strong interest in Chinese culture, decided to change that. After receiving permission, he voluntarily started to weed, build fences, and do anything he could to preserve the graveyards. Every year ahead of the tomb sweeping day, which is the traditional Chinese holiday for people to pay respect to their ancestors, he will post ads in newspapers in California and Nevada calling for Chinese people to visit the graves. Honestly, I am really touched by what Larry does for the dead. It is an incredible privilege to be here today as we induct the Chinese railroad workers into the Labor Hall of Honor. On May the 9th, 2014, an induction ceremony was held in Washington, D.C., where Chinese railroad workers were finally recognized. In the Hall of Honor at the U.S. Department of Labor, a glass plaque that commemorates the efforts and the contribution now hangs alongside some well-known names in American labor history, such as Cesar Chavez, Samuel Gompers, and Bayet Rustin. It would seem that Chinese railroad workers have finally gotten their long overdue appreciation. However, Li Zhu and Huang Anyan's research remains an ongoing passion. And for Rong Jing, who recalls the portrait of a great-grandfather almost half a century ago, admits she still doesn't know much about the man in the painting. I learned everything I can about him through my grandmother by feats and starts. I know my great-grandfather went to America to fulfill his golden mountain dreams and then worked as a lumberman during the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. I know that when he came back to China, he was forced to stay after his family burned his passport and all his travel documents. Back here at home, he ended up becoming a tailor and saved up some money to start his own family. That's all I know about him. My grandmother knew more. Sadly, she has already passed away. Many gaps in my great-grandfather's history still need to be filled. Huang Anyan, who has spent years trying to piece together the past, is pleading with people and officials in both countries to take steps right now to try to preserve the unique history of Chinese rail workers. Today, there are only a few descendants of those rail workers who still know their family stories. Take Rongjing's grandmother, for example. We knew about her for over 20 years, but we never realized that she is the daughter-in-law of a gold mountain man. When we finally figured that out, it was too late, because she was too old to speak at that time. That's why we need to recall, interview, and preserve the oral history of the descendants as soon as possible. It's quite urgent. Otherwise, there will be fewer and fewer people who are still able to give their accounts of those stories.
That was historian Huang Annian and photographer Li Zhu sharing with us the stories from the book "Trace the Silent Spike: Commemorate the Chinese Workers Who Built the American Railroad," or in Chinese, 沉默道钉的足迹，纪念华工建设美国铁路。If you are interested in that area of history, you will also want to check out Huang Annian's previous publications or read American journalist Iris Chang's book, *The Chinese in America: A Narrative History*. And for further references, there is also a novel written by Canadian Chinese writer Zhang Ling entitled *Gold Mountain Blues*. On that note, it's time to wrap up today's program. Don't forget that there are always interesting happenings in the literary world, and we will try to keep you up to date on as many as we can. To learn more about us, follow our Facebook account by simply typing China Plus, or download our podcast by searching the keyword Ink and Quill on iTunes. Thanks a lot for listening. I'm your host Yang Yong. Talk to you again next time.